0: I listened to a really fascinating podcast discussion last week between digiconomist Alex Vries, the frankly anti-Bitcoin energy-focused data scientist who is associated with the Dutch Central Bank, and Ben Gagnon, who is a executive at BitFarms, a Bitcoin mining group, and he deals with a lot of Bitcoin mining data. I recommend giving it a listen because it's a great example of how Bitcoiners and their critics talk past each other. Alex DeVries basically is fixated on the energy cost per transaction. And the thing is, Bitcoin can use any amount of energy per transaction. There's not actually a fixed amount of energy cost per transaction. There's just a fixed amount of security provided by all the miners on the network. And the correct amount of security is determined by the price of Bitcoin and the relative amount of competition from other miners. Alex doesn't care to understand this security model, and so he loses himself in the complexities of a model that drastically overestimates both Bitcoin's energy usage and the proportion of fossil fuels that make up that energy consumption. This means that Alex's work is essentially propaganda for anybody with an axe to grind against financial freedom, Bitcoin, or the political opponents that are using Bitcoin. I know that sounds frustrating, but it's also a pretty interesting listen. And this conversation came out in the same week that CoinMetrics, a Bitcoin and altcoin data provider, released a fascinating paper that accurately estimates Bitcoin's energy usage by fingerprinting the miners that are generating Bitcoin hash rate. This has always been an issue for estimating Bitcoin's energy usage. And just an aside, no other industry reveals its energy usage so openly as Bitcoin, because you can infer it from the Bitcoin blockchain. So if you just have a Bitcoin node, or you query a Bitcoin node occasionally, you basically get a signal of how much energy Bitcoin is using every 10 minutes with, with each new block. No other industry provides that kind of data. And as a result, this transparency is used by people with an axe to grind against Bitcoin. And I have to be honest, I just don't really think that there is a legitimate energy critique of Bitcoin because every critique of Bitcoin falls back to the fundamental assumption that you should always try to use less energy. And I think that maybe that makes sense on an individual level because all of our houses have an energy meter and we're billed by how much energy we use. But the thing is, the meter is actually superfluous. The meter is only to track your individual usage The operator of the grid is producing electricity and making it freely available to everyone on the grid. And as such, they have to oversupply electricity. And because Bitcoin mining is so competitive, Bitcoin miners really can't consume anything except free electricity. This means that the Bitcoin mining model fundamentally is always finding free electricity. And because of the corruption and overproduction of energy resources in China, for the first eight years of its life, Bitcoin mining took place in China powered by Chinese coal for part of the year and Chinese hydropower for the rest of the year. But that's changed. As I'll get to in this episode, China has changed. It doesn't have the credit to waste on producing excess energy that it's not going to use. And that transformation in policy and perspective coincides with Bitcoin mining leaving China. And a very a much reduced footprint of Bitcoin mining in China. Check out the article, really interesting. The signal and the nonce, the way that Coinmetrics fingerprints miners is by doing analysis on the nonce values that are revealed by miners connecting to mining pools and, and attempting to mine blocks. These nonce values are generated from the physical hardware of the Bitcoin mining chip. And as we've talked about before, when generating Bitcoin seeds, creating randomness is actually quite difficult. And so while Bitcoin mining nonces are pretty random. They're in sort of like a very specific section of infinity a subset perhaps and not that that makes sense i mean this is very hand wavy you know don't quote me on this and as such the ant miner s9 its nonce is the signal is a bit different than a what's miner. so this enables you to figure out the composition of hash rate and then you can look up the specs on all these machines and just estimate how many watts of power are being consumed so it's pretty cool great work definitely will be used to attack bitcoin but you know what are you going to do right Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod. I'm your Bitcoin Dad and I am flying solo again this week as my co-host Chris is on vacation and last week I hinted that we would have a special guest host this week. Fortunately, the conversation with that person, and I'll reveal it was Paul Stork, who we had as a special guest host last year, but Paul has such an interesting view Our conversation was so wide-ranging that he needed his own show, and so this will just be a short episode this week. This week, we are going to cover a beautiful pair of articles that complement each other so nicely. One is an article from the New York Times, which is an ode to globalization. It's very interesting, and it almost reads like the New York Times is slowly orange-pilling itself, slowly realizing that we're actually in a world where Bitcoin is very useful because there's this inevitability to unsustainable government balance sheets and the need to somehow somehow make this debt disappear and the answer of course will always be inflation and getting savers to pay for it. Arthur Hayes, our favorite BitMEX co-founder, has a new blog post on the fungibility of capital. It's really interesting. It's also about globalization because Arthur has a very macro focus and he gets into why he's bullish on crypto sort of even though the US is so anti-crypto. TLDR, concentrating wealth means that most people's purchasing power doesn't matter. Only the whales matter. In Arthur's model. And there might be some truth to that, but it beautifully complements the New York Times piece. And then we will only have one more item, which is Bitcoin Optech Newsletter 256, where Gloria Zhao is contributing a section on mempool relay policy because as a contributor to Bitcoin Core, the mempool and package relay is her wheelhouse. And she has a very thoughtful, interesting view on this. Is it dry? I can't sell anymore. Maybe it's dry, but you can accidentally fork the network and change consensus if you have too much variation in mempool transaction relay policy. And then we have some boosts and that's our show. What we thought about the global economy is no longer true. I read the New York Times and I've gone from viewing it as just your average news source to being interesting because the New York Times seems to be part of the construction of a certain liberal American worldview. And it's interesting because it really stays quite constrained by the Overton window of acceptable political and economic thought, which means that the NYT often feels like it can't argue against globalized financial liberalism, but it knows that that disadvantages large numbers of people the way it's been implemented. And so it's always in this kind of distress of wanting to suggest something else, but knowing that promoting incredibly socialist or collectivist solutions is a little distasteful to its readership, but straight out, F the poor, they deserve it, the world is built for the wealthy and successful, you know, that doesn't quite jive with their worldview. This is almost a eulogy for globalization, and it starts with the nostalgia for the days of the end of history. When the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union fell apart, this was seen as the end of history, that naturally everything would converge to free economic capital markets and liberal democratic governments worldwide. And that clearly never happened. It was obviously not happening at every point in the past 40 years. But now that COVID and the war in Ukraine has demonstrated that this economic model specifically very long global supply chains, is incredibly fragile. When you look at that, you have to look at the political and economic consensus that resulted in this economic arrangement. And the article almost figures out that the low inflation and high growth of the 90s was not due to the internet or technological advancement. It was due to China slowly joining the global economy and then busting into the WTO. It's just you add more and more Chief Capital and resources to the global machine and you will get more stuff out. I mean, it's pretty simple, right? They also admit that this was very dirty growth because the rich world displaced polluting heavy industry into China and India, and this just moved the pollution and the local health effects to people overseas. Of course, it still means the same amount of carbon, or in fact, more carbon is being consumed because in addition to the dirty industry that you moved overseas, you now have to ship the goods much farther. So, it's just a net more carbon-intensive system. And while this did create some economic growth, especially in China, it did not result in wealthy societies with democratic values. And what instead we saw were global capital flows dominating developing market economies. Only China and India, in my opinion, were large enough countries with significant economic, political and military clout to essentially resist the IMF and World Bank and chart a national economic policy that didn't just turn them into a neo-colonial rentier state. Whereas the rest of the developing world, look around, you have economies that produce one commodity export good, bananas, coffee. You get a little tourism for free. If you can do bananas, coffee and tourism, you know, you're a very successful Latin American country. But, you know, that's a very thin economy and it's actually not particularly productive. So why isn't local, productive, developed economies sprouting up in the developing world. And we argue, and the New York Times sort of concedes that the problem is that the international financial, monetary, and capital system is incredibly predatory, and even the IMF acknowledges that their own policies increase inequality. The ray of sunlight in this depressing summary of the international global capital experiment is that as this economic model fails to work, this global Kanban super efficient supply chain model fails because production and transportation times just become more and more unreliable as disruptions to industry caused by COVID and then by the Ukraine war affect supply chains all around the world that you wouldn't think would be affected, but are because this system was very efficient, which means very fragile. Now there's a swinging of the pendulum back towards national self-sufficiency, robust supply chains. Well, what does robust mean? It means overbuilding. It means more infrastructure with less throughput. That's reducing your capital efficiency. That means your projects can support less debt. This is actually a very serious and complicated financing issue, especially in a world with incredibly high levels of both corporate and government debt caused by 40 years of falling interest rates. I recommend giving this a read because this is the New York Times slowly convincing itself to buy Bitcoin. Chef's kiss. Arthur Hayes is my favorite degenerate trader. He describes how his buddy, who's a elite derivatives trader argues that a chinese yuan devaluation is coming well no duck, but in his analytical framework this is very interesting the u.s likes to imagine that it's the center of the world but the thing is the united states represents four percent of the world's population and its share of global economic output falls every day there's an argument that crypto markets are dead because the u.s is going after crypto Suing Coinbase and Binance is basically killing participation in the major altcoins among U.S. institutional investors, for sure, hedge funds maybe, and maybe less so retail. But that doesn't matter, says Arthur, because retail is poor. Even the mass affluent, the, I think he says, 10% of Americans who earn between $100,000 and $200,000 a year, these people are also poor, in Arthur's view, because they only had buku excess money to pour into financial markets when they got stimmy checks. Because they didn't need to quit their job. They could work from home. If you're earning 100K plus, you're probably working in front of a computer, which means you can do remote. So there are no more stimmy checks coming because even the Federal Reserve has admitted that direct government stimulus causes prices to explode because it's a sudden injection of money and a lot of that will flow into the goods economy. And the goods economy needs months to increase and decrease inventories. So just the speed at which stimmy checks move into the goods economy creates serious inflation. Well, price appreciation. It doesn't create inflation unless it goes into banks and starts being lent out, but it can cause prices to shoot up. And this is bad in terms of consumer purchasing, but also it's bad for the economy because it sends a confusing economic signal that causes companies to panic in or FOMO into expanding their operations and then FOMO out. So we FOMOed in over the past year and a half, and now we're FOMOing out as companies have wage freezes and are moving towards mass layoffs. But the thing is, China has a lot of mass affluent. China has a huge number of super wealthy people too, maybe only the third or fourth behind the U.S., and with moves in Hong Kong to orient that financial market towards crypto investment, suddenly there's a possibility that large numbers of Chinese can speculate in garbage altcoins again. Why would the CCP do that? Well, there's a really interesting argument that Arthur makes that China needs to devalue the yuan, not so much because of its relative price versus the U.S. dollar, but more so because of its relative price versus the Japanese yen. The Bank of Japan has enacted yield curve control where they fix interest rates of various government securities regardless of what markets do. And this means that they actually have to purchase huge amounts of government securities to the point where the Bank of Japan has become the buyer of the Japanese bond market. It's a zombie market. This supports a large Japanese government deficit. You can't issue as much government debt as you like, control interest rates, and control your exchange rate. This is called the monetary trifecta, and you can choose two at most. And so that means that the yen exchange rate has been the free variable, and it has fallen like a stone because these policies are perceived to be uh, expansionary. Since the U.S. doesn't really make goods anymore, but instead exports financial products, the U.S. isn't competing with Japanese or Chinese exports. Rather, those two countries are competing together, and also with Germany, which is a massive exporter, but mainly within the EU. So Japanese yen devaluations is actually sort of a mercantilist policy that is hurting Chinese exports. And China has a serious unemployment crisis right now. College graduate unemployment in China is above 20%. This is a nightmare. This is revolutionary. This also relates to those protests against COVID that immediately changed the entire Chinese COVID lockdown policy to an open policy. That happened incredibly fast, and everyone's forgotten that. Why did the powerful CCP bend the knee so fast to a bunch of protesters? You don't even have the right to protest in China. The answer is protests plus unemployment bad economy is very frightening to them. It's regime change material. And so they need an economic win. They need growth to absorb this unemployment. And a theme in our show is that nobody learns, no one has a new idea, and you just get the same old plan every time, which is generally debt expansion at a government level to invest in infrastructure and other inefficient economic projects. And for China, that means export-oriented investment. But if you think about it, devaluing the yuan means that China as a balance sheet as a, on a country level will end up holding more dollars. And this is also a problem because holding US government debt is financing the military spending of your largest geopolitical rival if you're the Chinese government. Also, the US will totally cancel your debt or mess with your financial assets if you have a fight with them as the war in Ukraine demonstrated. And politically, domestically, If it was known that the government allowed the U.S. to steal a trillion dollars of central bank deposits or something because they were custodied in a foreign central bank or they were in U.S. treasuries that were canceled in the U.S. treasury central ledger, that could cause protests. The CCP has leaned hard into nationalism to create political legitimacy among their subjects as economic growth has slowed previous to nationalism it was economic growth the subtext was you might not love the ccp you might not love the total lack of expression political rights or freedom of assembly but we deliver growth so just come along for the growth and keep your mouth shut but where's the growth now you've got 20% unemployment of college graduates you know being a college graduate in china is not the keg stands and easy times that american hollywood college movies depict it's an incredibly arduous process. Have you ever noticed how the incidence of glasses wearing among Chinese students is higher than in American students. This is a fact-based statement, you know, it's not a generalization, it's it's true in most samples. It's because Chinese middle school students often study an additional 4 hours after school hours ends at a special cram school. What I'm getting at is a lot of families invested a huge amount of resources and effort into producing a family college graduate and now that person is unemployed post-graduation. Personally, I could imagine being very frustrated in that situation. So what does this have to do with Hong Kong and crypto markets? Well, if Chinese residents are purchasing crypto assets via Hong Kong, first of all, because the CCP controls Hong Kong, you can have it such that generally people are buying a low-cost ETF where the crypto assets are custodied by a CCP-regulated institution. So the CCP actually controls the coins. You get a little bit of exposure to the price appreciation, potentially, but you don't get the anti-censorship, anti-government money properties. Also, as Chinese citizens buy crypto assets, Actually, the mechanism of the transaction is that the citizen gives Chinese yuan to the Chinese banking system, which is essentially the Chinese government. That banking system takes their yuan, converts it into a dollar, and uses that dollar to buy crypto in Hong Kong. That's the mechanism. There's not a direct trade of renminbi into Hong Kong dollars. There's actually always an invisible dollar transaction in the middle of that. What this has the effect of doing is actually reducing dollar holdings at the government level as citizens trade renminbi for the government's dollars that are then swept into crypto. And if these transactions are going into a government-regulated ETF, you still technically control those assets. So this is a way of de-dollarizing potentially. And it's quite clever. It does mean that investors are likely to be burned on bad crypto investments, but maybe by concentrating this activity in Hong Kong, it doesn't become a CCP problem because, hey, that happened in Hong Kong. That's a whole different kettle of fish. On the mainland, that's not allowed. The CCP is strong and protects you from financial scamming. It's a really interesting argument. I recommend giving it a read. Bravo, Arthur. Since Chris isn't here, I'll just drop an ad in. My co-host Chris is the founder, CEO, head honcho of Jupyter Broadcasting, which produces a suite of awesome Linux podcasts, some of which have video, which they will stream to YouTube via Peertube. Yes, decentralized YouTube. Super interesting stuff. If you're a big old nerd, you should check it out because they're great podcasts with excellent production quality, fun content, and just really interesting views. I've learned a lot. Bitcoin Optech newsletter 256. There is a discussion of extending Bolt 11 invoices. This is a type of Lightning Network invoice, which frankly, I don't really know that much about. So I'm going to skip that and focus instead. On Gloria Zhao's contribution, which is an excellent article about the mempool. Surprise, surprise, Gloria is a mempool fiend. The ideal setup for a peer-to-peer transaction consensus system like Bitcoin would be that mempool policy is fixed. Well, maybe that's not true. So if you couldn't choose how many megabytes on your computer to allocate to the mempool, or maybe you put limits on the size of certain transactions, if those are all fixed, It would mean you'd have fewer options in terms of hardware that you could run the mempool on. And it might even be disadvantageous because some commercial companies and weird individuals run mempools with much more resources and much more permissive policies than other mempools. And as a result, if your transaction flows into one of those mempools, it's likely to not be lost if it gets fee bumped out of smaller mempools. Of course, this can create problems because you might think that that transaction got fee bumped, but then suddenly it's mined and maybe you didn't do a replace by fee or a child pays for a parent to accelerate that transaction and instead You made a new transaction and you realize you paid twice. That could be a problem. Sure. And that gets to the fact that you can't actually set uniform mempool policy because different network participants are different. If you're a big commercial company, you won't probably want a bigger mempool. Maybe you are actually doing complicated transactions that might get screened out of some mempools. So you might have a more permissive policy. The problem is if mempool policies, transaction relay policies, are very different across nodes, you might start to create structures where some nodes just don't relay transactions to each other. This is essentially breaking up the Bitcoin network and making it such that nodes don't have a view on the total state of consensus. You basically break global consensus because this policy around transmitting transactions and maintaining them in a mempool is so different across nodes. This obviously would be a serious problem because you'd get issues like you could have blocks that had the same transaction in it twice, or you could just get two different chain states. Your node might not see transactions that are on another branch of the network. Really big issue. At the same time, you don't want to restrict mempool and transaction policies too much because these policies might need to be modified to preserve network uptime. You might be getting hit with denial of service attacks or something. This is a very experimental and wild undertaking in distributed computing. It's literally never been something like the Bitcoin network before, a network of computers running all over the world that are sort of adversarially sharing information with each other. The World Wide Web works because there's an assumption of good actors. There's a limited amount of economic damage you can cause when you attack computers via the World Wide Web, though, of course, that's growing every day. And there are a lot of control points that are being used to, you know, obviously censor some people, but also to Censor bad actors and spammers and DDoSers. So I think this is a great read. It really opened my eyes to the complexity behind Bitcoin, the fact that there's nothing inevitable about Bitcoin. It's really much more amazing that a human endeavor with this level of complexity works so well and is challenging established systems of financial, both technology and power that have every advantage and yet still seem to struggle in the face of this collective open source revolutionary monetary undertaking. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, Bitcoin Dad Pod at protonmail.com or at Bitcoin Dad Pod on Twitter. But the real conversation is in our show Matrix channel. Well, it's not really ours. We just borrow a channel from Jupiter Broadcasting, because Chris is cool like that. But it's called the Bitcoin and Alts Discussion. I didn't name it, Chris did. And we have alts in there just because people come in, they ask questions about alts, and then we politely explain what we think the answer is. And usually it's, that alt is a big old scam, you shouldn't touch it. Check it out using a matrix client-like element, link in the show notes. And we had a bunch of boosts this week in no particular order. We received a 3,000 sat reoccurring tip via Oak Node. Thank you so much. And then we got our show's mega boost this week, 100,000 sats from ADeVries17. Is this Alex DeVries, as in Digi-Economist, that I just trashed in the podcast? Well, Alex, thanks for the boost. I'm sorry I was so harsh on your model and her transaction accounting of Bitcoin Energy. Hey, Dad and Chris, first time boosting. I've been listening to this show for the last couple months and really love it. You've really made a good case for Bitcoin, and I've started taking self-custody seriously. Using Podverse with Albi at the moment, but working on setting up my own node using Ansible and Terraform for... The home lab. Wow, wow. We need to be friends. Please join the Matrix channel. Keep up the great work. Yes, also a Lizard Man fan in Warhammer Fantasy. Mostly play the Total War series of games and always have had a great time with them. Well, I think this podcast has found its niche. It is now going to be a Warhammer fantasy slash Bitcoin podcast. There we go. Thank you so much for the boost. And I think that Podverse and Albi is a great daily driver for podcasting 2.0. At the same time, having your own node, your own lightning node is an awesome project for a home labber and is even approachable for relatively non-technical people if they use a node in a box solution like Umbral. True Grit boosted in 5,000 sats. He was listening to the Ordinals interview with Brandon Black and another 5,000 sats listening to the Hugh Pill episode. I see you're catching up on the back catalog. Thanks a lot, True Grits. We also received a row of ducks from Mere Mortals Podcasts. I talk a bit about Apple and how they are not playing super nice in my latest episode about Podcasting 2.0, Value for Value and Bitcoin. I will give that a listen. That sounds awesome. In the end, they're just doing what big entities always do, kind of random decisions that can inconvenience individuals. Here, here. It's not about us. It's about them. The solution is to invest time in things that are missionless decentralized and allow for self-sovereignty aka podcasting 2.0 value for value and bitcoin Domus may go down but noster will live on thanks so much mere mortals i agree with you entirely and i agree that we need to have a practical view about these things and not feel personally attacked because it's not about us we also received 2100 sats from korea 33 who was listening to Barack on ARC? This is a great, clear, concise, and easy to follow interview that finally let me understand the trade offs of ARC in ways that make sense. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening. I'm glad that was helpful. Hal was right, sent in 2100 sats. I'm curious how the remittance stacks are calculated for Chivo. First, how would they know they are remittance payments coming in? Secondly, many people understand Chivo is a state run wallet and don't trust it as much as Blink, Blue Wallet, or Moon. Perhaps Salvadorians with access to Chivo only use it for cheap conversion to USD. I suggest checking out the River Payments report because I did look through it but I couldn't I couldn't quite decompose the Chivo data. At the same time, I believe it should be obvious because remittance payments via Chivo will either have a foreign bank account associated with it or a deposit from a Chivo ATM in another country. So I think they could actually see the remittance numbers quite clearly. That said, I don't know anything about Chivo adoption. And I imagine the free USD conversion creates an incentive to always use Chivo for that service because it's free. Scott boosted in a row of ducks. He was listening to episode 85, Privately Paying the World. Fantastic episode. Love the CBDC poll analysis. On your thing about being a libertarian or not. I'd say the word is best used as an adjective and that you hold many libertarian views. Oh, thank you. The community has gotten wrapped up in purity tests and dogma, so it's better to do like Cato and have a commitment to human liberty, but not marry any philosophies. It's all semantics anyway and barely matters. Smiley face. I completely agree, Scott. I think being married to dogma, philosophy, and opinion is a trap. Let's be passionate in our views and hold them lightly. Thank you so much, all of our boosters. If you get some value from this podcast, please consider boosting in. You can use a value-for-value podcasting 2.0 app, such as Podverse with Albi, Castomatic on iOS, or you can boost directly from the podcast index link in the show note. You just go there, and you can enter the URL into any Lightning wallet or Albi. You can also send a reoccurring boost to me or Chris using our Albi Lightning addresses links in the show notes. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on June 23rd, 2023. I think I forgot to say that at the beginning. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I will see you next time.